God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you this evening. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Noel Coward, a famous British playwright and composer and actor and all kinds of other stuff, he died in 1973. Uh, he once played a practical joke on 20 of the most famous men in London. And trust me, he knew 20 of the most famous men in London because Noel Coward was of the highest of society, an elite person, knew everybody, politicians, actors, everybody in the arts, you name it. He was, he had his enemies, but he was lots of people's friend as well. He had a kind of a sick sense of humor though sometimes, so he, he prayed a practical joke on 20 of the most famous men in London. He sent all 20 men an identical note that read, Everybody has found out what you have done. If I were you, I would get out of town. What did all 20 men do? They all got out of town. What if you opened the mail one day and found a, a note that said the same thing? Everybody has found out what you have done. If I were you, I would get out of town. Would make you wonder, huh? Is this a joke or not? <laughs> what would race through your mind? The income you hid from the IRS? All that time you spent at work playing Microsoft Solitaire? The expense account you inflated? Your secret rendezvous in Chicago? Hmm. Just the very thought can bring the sense of gulp, guilt. Sometimes guilt can sit on our chest like a concrete block until we feel like crawling into a hole to die. Now, maybe there's someone on the planet that hasn't known guilt. Well, Orion said he hasn't known guilt, but he will, right? <laughs> a quagmire of remorse, guilt is, an ongoing note to self, you're in trouble, you're worthless. But I've never met a person until Orion that has had no guilt. Maybe your guilt isn't the result of a moment, but a season of life. You failed as a spouse or a parent. You squandered your youth or your money or both. The result, guilt. Tonight we walk to the courtyard in Jerusalem, the courtyard of the high priest named Caiaphas. In Caiaphas's courtyard, we see guilt, Peter's guilt, and our own. Beyond the courtyard, though, we see grace, grace for Peter and grace for us. Now, to get the context of this courtyard thing, we need to rewind to last week and go back to Gethsemane. Peter answered Jesus, oh, all these other guys, they, they may fall away from you, but I'll never fall away. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus and Peter had been through so much together. Three years earlier or abouts, Jesus was walking on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
And Jesus sees Peter fishing with his brother Andrew and calls them to follow. I will make you fishers of men, Jesus says. And Peter and Andrew drop, drop their nets and follow him. About a year later, one day, Peter follows Jesus out of the Sea of Galilee during a thunderstorm. Peter walks on the water, but then begins to sink. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, takes hold of Peter, and brings him back into the boat, saves him. Jesus even has a little fun with Peter sometime later, where Peter is grilled by the tax collectors from Jer come on, on down from Jerusalem to inquire, hey, uh, doesn't your teacher pay the tax, the temple tax? And Peter says, oh, yeah, he pays it. And then later, Jesus says, hey, Peter, uh, <coughs> I don't have the temple tax, but why don't you go into the lake and fish, and you'll, the first fish you pluck out of the water will have a coin from both you and me to pay the temple tax. At Caesarea Philippi, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that, Jesus takes Peter along with James and John to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then Jesus invites this same trio to witness his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. No wonder Peter makes the claim, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's been through a lot with his friend and Lord Jesus. But we've all made that claim. When we got confirmed in the church, the pastor asked, do you intend to live according to the word of God and in faith, word and deed, remain true to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit even unto death? And you said, yes, or I do. So did I. But over time and through our lives, there's cracks begin to form in that confession. As the events in the courtyard unfold, it's like watching cracks in the house's foundation slowly spread. A young woman comes up to Peter and says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter denies it, saying, I don't know what you mean. The first crack. Peter then goes out of the courtyard entrance where another young woman sees him and she says to the people around there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denies it, only this time with an oath. I do not know the man. The second crack. When there are enough cracks, things will start breaking apart. And there's going to be a collapse. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. Now what about this accent? Well, we know from first century documents that the Jews in Galilee spoke a slightly different dialect of Aramaic. It's, it's like when we hear someone who's talking from the deep south of the United States, right? We can tell where people might be from. Peter's accent betrayed him. 
What does Peter do? The expression, invoke a curse on himself, is where we get the English word anathematize. Not mathematize, which is what I needed in school, but anathematize. It means to be eternally condemned. Paul uses the same word in Galatians chapter 1. If anyone preaches a different gospel to you, he tells the Christians there, let him be anathematized, eternally condemned. Man, that's pretty harsh. Peter would rather be condemned than admit he knows Jesus. First comes Peter's evasive denial. Then comes Peter's direct denial on oath. Now comes Peter's curse on himself. What's next? The rooster. The collapse. It happens when we say just one more drink, just one more lie, just one more fling, just one more look, the cracks. But one more leads to one more. When there are enough cracks, there will be a collapse. Then what? Guilt. What are our options? Well, we can numb it with another drink. Numb it through binge shopping, binge TV watching. Just about anything today is bingeable. Or deny it. Concoct a plan to cover it up. But one lie leads to another lie, then another lie. Before long, we have to adjust the second lie to along with the first, to align with the first lie, and so on and so forth. More cracks. Or you can bury it, bury your guilt beneath a mountain of work and a calendar of appointments. The busier we stay, the less time we have to spend with that one person we have to come to dislike the most, ourselves. Or redirect it. Lash out at the kids. Lash out at your spouse, your coworkers, your cat, your dog, the driver in the next lane, whoever. Offset it. Build the perfect family. Create the perfect career. Score perfect grades and completely be intolerant of mistakes by yourself or other people. Guilt turns us into miserable, weary, angry, duplicitous, stressed out people. Guilt sucks the life right out of us. Grace, however, restores it. Remember what grace is from last week? Grace is God's favorable attitude toward us. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter didn't numb his guilt with drink. He didn't deny it. He didn't bury it. He didn't minimize it or redirect it or offset it. Peter confessed his guilt. While Peter went outside the courtyard to confess, Jesus went to the cross to die. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get it all together, you see. Jesus doesn't wait until we overcome our temptations and fight our demons and conquer our sin. Paul says in Romans, God shows His love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. In our courtyard, we see guilt. Beyond our courtyard, at the cross, we see grace. Thank God. And grace means what? God's what attitude? 
favorable attitude towards us. And it means a comeback. Because who preaches the sermon on Pentecost in Acts? Peter. Whose sermon invokes the Holy Spirit and converts a thousand people? Peter's. Who writes two letters which end up in the New Testament Bible? None of mine do. Peter. Comebacks don't depend on how much we love Jesus. Comebacks depend on how much Jesus loves us. And that's good news. Comebacks don't depend on what we do for Jesus. Comebacks depend on what Jesus does and has done for us. Comebacks don't depend on us giving up our life for Jesus. Comeback depends on Jesus giving His life for us. Our story isn't over when Jesus is in it. We can all come back from guilt. How? The grace of God. Which is what? His favorable attitude towards us. And that was something Luther had a hard time understanding. His belief was God's attitude towards us was one of hatred and anger and condemnation. Which God hates sin in that, in that way. But his attitude towards his people, his, create, his, his creatures, human creatures, was that of favor that he would send his son Jesus to die for you and me. Amen.